Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they would like to keep safe in a time capsule. They can pick anything from any time in their life, and of any nature or size, but they must pick four things that they treasure, no matter how insignificant they may appear to others, and one thing they wish they could forget, something they would like to bury in the ground and never think about again. My guest in this episode is Lloyd Griffith, Lloyd is a comedian, actor, presenter and classically trained singer. You may have seen him most recently in the brilliant Ted Lasso on Apple TV or It's a Sin on Channel 4, which was also pretty good. He was also in Infinite on Paramount, House of Games on BBC Two, Not Going Out on BBC One and Jonathan Ross's Comedy Club on ITV. Yes, he likes to move around the channels. Lloyd fronted a documentary on the BBC called Can You Beat the Bookies and he was co-host of Soccer AM on Sky Sports and Flinch on Netflix. You may also have seen him on 8 Out of 10 Cats, Comedy Central Live at the Comedy Store, Pointless Celebrities, Undeniable, Comedy Games Night, Roast Battle, Bounty Hunters, Drunk History, Taxi to Training, Football's Funniest Moments, The Premier League Show and Songs of Praise. Anyway, Lloyd recently supported Jack Whitehall on his UK arena tour and had previously supported Rob Beckett on his UK tour. Lloyd is in the process of completing his own sold-out stand-up tour of the UK, which had an 18-month gap in the middle of it. Not sure why. Anyway, singing-wise, Lloyd is a classically trained choral singer, as I mentioned, and can often be heard performing with the choirs of Westminster Abbey, St George's Chapel Windsor Castle and various other London groups. More of that in the podcast, which you'll be relieved to know you can hear now. Yes, I'm actually going to shut up. OK, have fun. Thank you. 
annoyed. I'm impressed by the champagne. Oh yeah, so basically I got bought quite a lot of champagne when I moved house um, in December 2019 as like a moving, well done, new house and all that lot. And then just haven't had people around to share it because uh, <laughs> essentially I've just been locked in this house for coming up to three years now. So um, Perfect. Yeah, so. yeah, but finally off on tour. Finally off on tour. Um, well, I, I, I did start a tour in February 2020. Yeah. And then um, I did about 12 dates and then obviously um, the whole pandemic hit. So I then had to have an 18-month gap. <laughs> but this is the latest tour where I'm hoping that there's going to be no pandemic. I've had it three times now. So, uh, Lord. yeah, bit of an OG. I always thought that if you were doing a tour and then you had the COVID cutoff period where everybody had to stop doing work, that I would have, as a performer, needed to sort of stand up each day and just go through my lines. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one because once you're on stage, it's just muscle memory. It kind of gets right, back. Yeah. I think once it's in there for a, a period of time, it's then in there, maybe not forever, mm-hmm. but certainly for me, like at, at least a year. I always find if I've been acting, I'll yeah. finish the job. And then about a week later, I'm like, oh, I really, I really know this now. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've wrapped. Um, <laughs> I've just finished an opera this weekend, at Grange Park Opera down in um, West Horsley. Lovely. And the music and music and words have just been ringing around my head all the yeah. last few days. I'm like, I wonder when that'll go. Well, uh, it's been about a month with me. I did an audition for Wicked, but I keep waking up and finding myself singing the songs. Uh, <laughs> I've never even seen Wicked. I don't even. I don't know the show. Yeah, I, I auditioned for Book of Mormon, ah. and uh, so I know two of the songs pretty much off by heart. And I, <laughs> I've not seen the show. No. <laughs> I've not seen the show, and nor will I ever see the show. It was too high, actually. In the well, end. Where are you? Are you tenor, or are you...? Well, I'm a, a baritone, like bass baritone, mm. really, yeah. So, um, and this was, like, very, very high tenor, like top A's, top B's, and repetitively. So, it's like, well, I'm not, you know, I can't do that. No. So this show, I understand, Lloyd, is two tons of fun. One ton of fun. One ton of fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, the show is basically me just telling jokes and singing for an hour. Not singing non-stop for an hour, singing no. bits here, here and there. Um, and the reason why I wanted to call it One Ton of Fun is because my mum and aunties were called the Weather Girls growing up in Grimsby because they were just three fat women, which didn't make sense because the Weather Girls were two fat women. And the Weather Girls used to be called Two Tons of Fun back in the day. And then I went on holiday in 2012. I'd been to the Edinburgh Fringe. And then I went to on holiday to Menorca with Rob Beckett, another comedian. Mm-hmm. And there was a lady, a tribute actor, and she was called A Ton of Fun. And <laughs> I was like, I quite like the idea of being called A Ton of Fun. And so 10 years later, I finally put on a show called One Ton of Fun. Brilliant. That's what it is. It's just a little fat bloke trying to be funny for... <laughs> Uh, well, I say trying to be funny. Hopefully, it's funny uh, <laughs> for nearly you know two hours. So yeah, let's, let's see. yeah, it's quite a thing, isn't it? When yeah. you start out as a stand-up, going on for ten minutes, yeah, and then suddenly you're doing an hour. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, and I, I watched a little bit of stand-up, something that I found online of, of me from like seven years ago, and it made me cry and <laughs> go, "Oh, crikey!" Well, because you say you're still early doors and you're in your journey and stuff, and then like now it's um, you know, it's completely different. I mean, I, I love the thought of going out on stage for like an hour 
an hour and a half and stuff, just doing what you want. Yeah, long-form jokes that yeah. you can do in those situations. I mean, 10 minutes, you've got to get it in there, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. So I think, you know, once people come to see you, they're, they're there and they're invested in you. So, you know, if you go to a comedy club and you've got 20 minutes and you've got to win them over pretty quickly, whereas I think sometimes people are there to see you, you know what I mean? Mm. They want to hear what you've got to say. You'd have to win them over straight away. Obviously, you win them over by being funny and yeah. giving them a show that they're like, oh, God, that's brilliant. There's not that kind of like, right, come on then, you better be funny. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, God. Which is what you get in Edinburgh. Do you know what I mean? You go to Edinburgh and there's, you know, if you're not a name, there are you could be at 300 other different shows. And so there's, I think, a lot of time at Edinburgh, there's just a lot of folded arms being like, I could be anywhere right now and I'm here to see you. <laughs> I could be in a bar. Exactly. I mean, there's so much better stuff they can do than be in a small black room. Um, the first few years, you know, as you say, you're just doing like, I remember some gigs, you only got like 90 seconds stage time. <laughs> that's what they gave you. All right, you can do 90 seconds going, right, okay, yeah, that's definitely a thing, isn't it? And then, you know, five minutes and then 10 minutes and it, it expands. So, um, but those th- first three to five years, you know, you're finding your feet. You know, you don't yeah. know what nights you're doing at and... I think absolutely some of the nights that you do when you first start are so detrimental to a career. They're not actual spaces where you're welcomed as a performer. Usually other stand-ups that want to be on stage instead of you, they brought their friends. So I think it's not a level playing field until mm. you get about maybe two years into your comedy career where you'll actually be able to perform at nights that are comedy nights where people are there to see comedy, to see you and stuff. So... It's really weird comedy, I mean, compared to other art forms, you know, like acting, like singing, because there's no way of being able to audition for stuff, you know, like any mad bastard can do stand up, whether it's good or not, is a different matter entirely. Yes. So um, having read music at university and if I wasn't good at singing, I'd have been told very early on I wasn't good at singing. Whereas comedy, that just isn't, you know, anybody can try their hand at it. And there's no central council. There are no colleges where you can do it. It's just anybody can go to a room above a pub, put on what is deemed as comedy. And it's <laughs> what it does mean, though, is that the gates for entry are lifted. Yeah. So I guess it does have its advantages in that we've probably seen a lot more comedians that just wouldn't have done it otherwise. No, you always have that argument, don't you, when somebody says, well, I'm sorry, mate, that wasn't funny. You say, yeah, but it will be. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I say that. 90 on my tour. It will be. Lloyd, you've got three days left of your tour. Once I've honed it. You just wait. You wait for that encore in Grimsby on the final night. You must have really wanted to do it. I mean, you could be a professional chorister, and that's quite a good living, isn't it, being a professional chorister? Yeah, and to be fair, like, I mean, I am. I still do it now. I still do it, and a lot of my friends, be it choral singing or just straight rep or opera, it is a great career. And, you know, as I say, I've spent the last kind of two months doing this opera with Grange Park Opera. And, you know, it is an amazing, amazing experience. Mm. And just to be a part of an opera company is great. But I do love stand-up. Yeah. I'm quite lucky in that I had music to start off with and then went to stand-up. I was like, oh, actually, I think I might want to do this more, but also keep the singing as part of the uh, as part of the act as well. So yeah. trial and error, I guess, isn't it, really? Yeah, no, but brilliant. Well, it's a brilliant way to build a career, I think, to yeah. have that thing that you know you are, okay, I'm really good at this. I can keep doing that. But at the same time, I'm just going to take the risk here all the yeah. time. No, and I think that it is about risk-taking. And again, it's one of the only art forms where you can take a risk. Yeah. You know, if you just, uh, you know, if you're at the National Theatre, and go, oh, do you know what, I'm going to riff this tonight. <laughs> 
Did Pinter really know what he was? Was he any good? It's like, well, no, no, I'd stick with it. No, 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 no. You, you just watch me, and then the next thing you know, you're never performing at the national again. And you know, you got Sam Mendes throwing stuff at you. So again, <laughs> imagine. So I think that stand-up's quite good, and that you are able to take a lot more risks than you are able to in other art forms. Yeah. But also, I do think that there's more of a safety net in stand-up than there is in singing. You know, when I sing, there's no room for error. There's no room for it. Like I, I still deputise at various places, cathedrals and uh, chapels and stuff. And, you know, when you go to some of these, and some of these choirs are some of the best choirs in, in the country, mm. there is absolutely no room for error. The music that is on the page is the music that you sing, and it has yeah. to be at the exact tempo that the conductor's conducting at, and it has to be within the right kind of timbre, and the blend has to be right, and the pronunciation, every, everything has to be perfect. Mm. And I love that discipline. And I just, you know, I, I grew up being a chorister and uh, was really grateful that happened. And I think it helps for the stand-up. And also maybe I'm trying to be a bit more rebellious in stand-up. When I say rebellious, as in, you know, do try and take more risks. You know, I would classify myself definitely in the performer stand-up as opposed to, you know, joke. Yeah. I'm a performer more than a stand-up, I think. A joke writer. Mm. And it depends who you, who you like as well, like who you buy into. You know, there are certain comedians I'll go and watch who are, you know, friends or non-friends, and you'll go, I don't, I don't mind what they're going to say because what they're saying is funny. Yeah. And I bought into this brand of humour. And other comedians, you go, oh, I hope you've got some good jokes. I'm here for the jokes. You think of people like Lee Evans. He, he very rarely told a joke, but would entertain you for an hour, almost with energy. Well, he's, you know, he's old school entertaining, you know, like the likes of like Lee Evans, Lee Mack. Even if you were to look back at someone like Brian Connolly, they, yeah. mean, they were all blue coats. They were all entertainers. Mm-hmm. You know, Lee Evans bringing out a piano at the O2. You know, he's brilliant. I think uh, we do sometimes lack the natural entertainer in the comedy world. For me, the funniest people I like are, I just, I just know that they're funny in the green room. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Beckett. And that's interesting, isn't it, the green room concept of the stand-up comedian, the backstage area, because that's really the only place where you have any sort of contact with anybody. Otherwise, it's a very solitary existence, isn't it? Yeah, unless you're touring with someone. But even then, you know, it's, you know, it's car, then green room. I think sometimes, I think um, in the last kind of like few years, we're not doing a tour. Mm. I'd just be at home (laughs) on my own, writing jokes, then... Looking at your champagne, thinking, one day. Uh, One day I'll open it, do you know what I mean? When I write a good joke. Um, (laughs) And then you go to a a green room, and then the next thing, you know, you you are literally speaking to two or 300 people. There was one one instance where I went and did an hour preview. I'd been just working on the show, just remembering it, just going over it, listening to it, going over it, listening to it, going over it. And then went to the venue, and the venue manager was like, hello, mate, yes, yeah, so your green room's down there. I'll come and pick you up in about 15, 20 minutes. like, fine. <laughs> I said literally two words to him. And then the next thing, you know, you're going out in front of however many people. And you haven't spoken to anybody for months. I haven't spoken to anyone. Well, not months, <laughs> but even like that day especially, pretty much nobody. And you're going, I don't think this is normal. <laughs> to go from speaking to no one to then 200 people all at once. Yeah. It's just, it's you know, it's it's very, very odd. And it's not what um, you'd call a conversation, is it? It's very one-sided. <laughs> yeah, it's a very one-sided conversation. But uh, yeah, green rooms are great because it is, they are, you know, they are places where people talk about comedy because I think essentially that green room chat has become podcasts. A very good friend, uh, Joanne McNally, very good comedian, mm-hmm. and she's 
got this a very successful podcast and it's just two really funny people chatting <laughs> for an hour. Unfortunately, on this one, generally it's one funny person and me. <laughs> but uh, this does have a system to it, this podcast, yeah. which is that we talk about five things that you choose from any time in your life that you would like to have in a time capsule. I've thought long and hard about this. Oh, great. I have already on my iPhone notes got the list of songs that I'm going to select <laughs> when, not if, when Desert Island Discs come knocking. Um, I did have the Any idea moment of, now. Any I moment have, now. I did have the idea of um, just picking songs on Desert Island Discs that I just heard on other people's Desert Island Discs. Just <laughs> Lauren would be absolutely fuming. So why, why did you pick this track? Well, actually, I just heard it on Desert Island Discs. Ian Wright selected it. Okay, Fair enough. Not okay. So why have you chosen this? Well, actually, um, it was one of Stanley Johnson. I'm not sure if Stanley Johnson's done it. But, um, and it's a chance to repeat their anecdote, isn't it? Exactly. And they told this brilliant story. Exactly. The producers would be fuming, but ultimately a contract had been signed and they'd need to put it out. So I've already thought about that. So this was great because then it just extended my memory archiving as to what I loved growing up and, mm. and stuff. So no, I'm, I'm excited about it, but equally quite nervous. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll find out why yeah, then. So what's why. the first thing you'd want to put in? First one is a football. A football that I got when I was a young lad. It was a Mitre Delta Premier League Ultimax. Mm. And... They were quite expensive back then. You know, we, we, weren't, we weren't a rich family by any stretch of the imagination. So money wasn't... Uh... My mum basically would often... We should buy his presents. That was the big thing. Do you know what yeah. I mean? She'd work her tits off, bless her, to, to buy his good presents. But we weren't flush by any stretch of the imagination. No. I mean, that's got enough names to it, that ball, to know yeah, that oh, it's yeah. expensive. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so Mitre is like... They were the balls that everybody played with, like Premier League and... Mm various different divisions. And, you know, you'd go to a Grimsby Town match, you'd see the mighty ball being played with, you'd see the on match of the day. And I was just obsessed with it. And I was like, oh, mum, I'd love a mighty Delta Premier League ball. And I was really nervous because I don't think she really knew what it was as well. So I was having to repeat that name over <laughs> and over again because I didn't want her to get me like the replica one or the... Netball Premier yeah, League. Exactly, no, yeah. mum! There probably would have been one as well. And you're going, <laughs> I, I can't tell kids that this is what I got for Christmas because I've had, you know, <laughs> the piss taken out of me. But it was at a time where I think it came out in 1995. And so I'd have been about 12 I just really got into football at that at that point. I hadn't really been a massive football fan growing up. And then the Premier League came along and I just became like a, a little bit obsessed with it. And I, I know a lot of people weren't a fan of the Premier League. But as a young kid who just turned 10, 11, this was brilliant. Should have been this new brand of football. There's a thing called Sky TV, which we absolutely <laughs> could not afford. <laughs> no. And I just remember, I was obsessed with a goalkeeper called Peter Schmeichel. I actually wanted his gloves, Peter Schmeichel's Royce gloves, and they were far too expensive. And mum's like, I'm, look, I love you, but I'm, I'm not buying them. They're like 50, 60 quid. And I think this ball may have been like 15, 20 pounds. And mm. I was just, I just was obsessed with it. And I got it. And I got it. And I was over the moon that my mum got me it. And it was kind of like a real symbol of my childhood. And mm. um, I never played football with it. <laughs> For, really? for, a, for a long, long time, yeah. I used to have a goal in my auntie's back garden and I used to go and play football, but I would never play with it. And I'm like, you're not playing with that ball? I was like, but it's a brand, I don't want, I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> and it's the smell. Any any football fans listening or any fans of, I guess, any kind of uh, leather slash rubber 
um, <laughs> sports paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. It's got a, such a nostalgic smell. Yeah. So such a so I'd I'd put that into the time capsule because the smell alone would be unbelievable. Like we try and get a, a, a brand new one from somewhere. Sadly, I don't have mine anymore. After about a year, I did end up playing with it. After a while, I was like, look, what am I going to do? I actually wish I'd have kept hold of it because if I'd have kept oh. hold of it, it would have been worth a fair bit now. Yes, um, I noticed the other day that an unopened box original iPhone sold the other day. Somebody had bought one but never opened it and they auctioned it. So it cost £285 originally. The, the Was it? Quite a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And how much do you think it sold for? £10,000? £38,000. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's better than buying a house in Notting Hill in 1964, isn't it? <laughs> Almost, yeah. The, um, the rate of increase there. So, wow, that, yeah, I kind of, well, a bit sad now that I didn't, <laughs> had I kept hold of it. And that would have been the first ball of the premiership. Yeah, I believe it would have been, actually, yeah. I just remember it being the real talk of the playground. Everyone wanted it, and I, you know... I just couldn't believe it when my mum got me and she got the right one as well. I was like, mm. she listened, she remembered. <laughs> the fact that I'd written to Father Christmas so many times and put it in capital letters. Yeah, so that for me is going in. And when I was, you know, thinking about this and writing down my notes, of which I've written quite a, a, a few, <laughs> it's the smell. You know, the smell of a new football is just something else. So that would be, um, although saying that, one of the items that I'm going to put in later <laughs> might counteract the smell. So I've actually just realised in real time that, that might not be the case. <laughs> I could put them in separate chambers. Oh, that's fine. If you put them in separate chambers, then, then we're, we're absolutely cooking. Okay, fantastic. We're absolutely cooking, yeah. In it goes then. The wonderful, the mitre ball goes in. You make me very nostalgic, particularly mentioning Peter Schmeichel and his gloves. Well, I had a penchant for Man United back in the day, and I used to go to quite a few Man United games growing up with my cousins. They had season tickets. Um, one of my cousins has season tickets since the, since the 70s. So mm. it was actually cheaper for my mum to let me go with them on a Saturday. It was £9.50 for a junior ticket to go to Old Trafford wow. than it was to get a babysitter for seven hours while she was at the Wimpy. Um, <laughs> so um, Earning enough money to buy you a football. Well, bless her, yeah. And it mm. literally, that's what, that's what she'd you know, she, what she do and get overtime. And So I had this uh, real love for, for Peter Schmeichel. Um, mm. He was my idol growing up. Yeah, mine too. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> okay, well, all right, let's move on to see what the second item is then, Lloyd. So, second item. So I grew up as a, as a, as a choir boy, and basically this kind of happened a bit weird. I just went to a normal comprehensive school, and then I was kind of like spotted as a singer and went to the local choir school. The, the school that I went to thereafter was called St. James Choir School, Grimsby, and it was the only parish church in the UK with its own choir school. So most cathedrals have their own choir school. This one was the only only church with its own choir school. Amazing. One of three in the world, St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, I think St. Thomas Berlin also. So it was quite reputable, and it was in Grimsby, which was, you know, a bit odd. <laughs> and then I became a, a choir boy there, and I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, just a completely different world that I was unaware of. I remember the first time um, when they were like, said, look, we'd, we'd love Lloyd to audition. And I was like, okay, fine. And um, they auditioned me. And then the choir master, Mr. Shaw, came down and said to my mum, he was like, look, 
we really like Lloyd. We really like Lloyd's voice. We'd love to have him in the choir. Mum was like, oh, that's brilliant. Mm. So what does that consist of? He's like, well, so basically it's choir rehearsals, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, eight o'clock before school. And then there'll be choral even song Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> um, straight after school, you can pick him up about quarter past, half past six. And then there are two services on a Sunday. And she's like, oh, actually, I've just checked with Lloyd and he's, a- he's actually quite busy for the next few years. <laughs> anyway, and obviously, you know what I mean? It does mean, because Lloyd's got a full scholarship, it means full scholarship, but then also with that, you know, quiet tours and stuff. And she was mm. like, no, actually, just double checked. He, he can actually do it. So um, <laughs> my mum was quite fickle about that. It's an extraordinary thing to ask a young boy or now young girls as well to, to, yeah. to commit to, isn't it? Yeah. It's like oh. saying, okay, what we're going to do, we think you can go for the Olympics. So we're going to, yeah. you need to, train really hard yeah and that's what you're doing isn't it you're just learning it, it, learning learning it was and it was it was something that i didn't really question because it was exciting mm. you know it was quite daunting at the first time like, oh, i couldn't read music i didn't know what was going on i mean this music sheet music we put in front of me and it's, it's literally foreign mm. you know what i mean there are symbols that you've got no idea and i was six uh, seven at the time so I had no real idea what in God's name, literally, what in God's name was was going on on this on this music. And uh, after a little while, you kind of go, okay, right, I can figure out what's going on here. And you're doing it through like ear mm-hmm. for certain parts of it. But I just I became obsessed with it. And then growing up, it was like this is all I'm going to do. This is there was n- there was nothing else apart from singing that I was interested in. I just was obsessed with singing. How to get better at singing? How to get better at sight reading? Increasing my repertoire. And then singing in bigger choirs. That was all I was kind of interested in. Fantastic. So for this, what I'm actually going to do, we used to get um, a box of music. So you'd basically have uh, the choir master would give you the the music for the week. And then you'd have your own box that you'd basically put your music in for the week. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I'd essentially have a box of my music from being a choir boy from the age of eight to, to 13. So this, <laughs> if this is okay, so it would be like, I can, mem- I can remember it like it was yesterday. Essentially a box, not too dissimilar from what, um, not great for a listener. Um, this, <laughs> like a, you know, like a, a, like a, how would you, a storage box or like a, an A4, A4 size. A4 size. But about the size of a double size of a cornflake packet. Yeah. Or a large cornflake packet. Depends where you're getting your cornflakes from. A4 size and had all your music for the, for the for the week. So responses, the psalms, the canticles, the anthems. So in the capsule, I'd have a box of my music mm. from when I was a child. And in there, these are the, just the five that I've just brought, the, the bits of music that will kind of like spring to mind as, as a choir boy. So uh, Hubert Parry's My Soul, There Is a Country, which uh, I absolutely love. Beautiful. Um, Thomas Tallis, If You Love Me. Um, <laughs> Johannes Eckhart, Went to the Temple. Stanford and G Canticles. And then Nolo Mortem Peccatoris by Thomas Morley. They're the five things that spring to mind as I first sang as a choir boy. These were the pieces. Mm. Um, and these are composers that you look forward to getting. Yeah. So it's very specific, isn't it? Yeah, it is very specific. And at the time, I don't really know what was going on. Like, look, you had a composer that composed stuff. And, you know, so for example, these were just names. So I just remember, like, <laughs> Talis, if you love me. I just presumed that was what the piece was called until I realised <laughs> later on, oh, it's If You Love Me by Thomas Tallis. And, yes. you know, Stanford in G, I was like, I just I just presumed that was the name of a piece. When in fact, it was Magnificat and Noctimittis in the key of G major 
by Charles Villa Stamford, and you go, oh right. So even now, <laughs> like if I'm uh, if I'm depping in various like choirs, if my soul there is a country comes out, it's like, oh mm. yes, please. I, I actually believe it was sung at the funeral of the of the Queen recently as well. So yeah, this is just like a proper choral staple music, and mm. so it's a, a trip down memory lane, and essentially is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today. This kind of, this this started this career as a performer. So um, there'll be a, a box of my sheet music from a seven-year-old lad going in the capsule, if that's okay. Absolutely okay. I'm glad you didn't ask me to put in the Christmas week container. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that'll be quite large, wouldn't it? Yeah, and again, like all, the, all the music from around Christmas, I absolutely love as well, and still love performing around Christmas because there's just so much of it. The the carols, I'm not that bothered about, but it's more like the gorgeous little bits of choral music that you see. Yeah. That you're like, yeah. I do love some of the carols, though, where those other parts, so the, the for example, the tenor or the, the bass part in uh, Away in a Manger, yeah. it's really beautiful. They all start the same, but then it has that really sort of... Yeah, it's very melodic, whereas usually it's quite homophonic. There's a lot of passing notes, and the basses get a little bit of... A little bit of a ride, really. (laughs) It's a wonderful thing for a child to have done. It's an extraordinary thing that they do throw you in at the deep end like that. Yeah, absolutely. I just think it it does, if anyone's out there and thinking, oh, should should I let my son, now thankfully daughter, audition in a choir, absolutely go for it. Because the skills that you do learn are amazing. Discipline but also the actual musicality skills and mm. teamwork. And, and the experiences you'll have. Oh, gosh, I mean, amazing yeah. things. It's you know, very moving, isn't it, to be singing in a choir at a church? Yeah. I was at the RSC and we were working so hard. We were doing sort of mm. loads of plays and lots of rehearsals and understudy rehearsals. And then somebody said, who wants to sing in the choir? We're going to sing in the choir for the Christmas carol concert in Shakespeare's church. And I went, me? Yeah. It was a real effort to fit it in. But God, what an experience. It was just yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's a very ethereal kind of, it, it's very otherworldly when, when you sing in choirs. So, for example, if I'm singing Christmas music in December <laughs> at St George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, which is one of the most beautiful places to sing in, it's quite Harry Potter. <laughs> for the layperson who hasn't been to St George's Chapel or Windsor Castle, it's very otherworldly you know you've got the 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 candles lit up you've got the flags Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's amazing i'm actually struggling to explain it and other places now you went to exeter you said didn't you yeah i sang exeter yeah i sang exeter for four years and that has a beautiful chapel yeah so the cathedral's amazing um which i sang in that pretty much every day Mm. um, for four years and then the actual chapel at the university itself Mm. has probably one of the best acoustics in the country Really? It's, called the, it's called the Mary Harris Memorial Chapel. And, uh, oh, my God, it's essentially an upturned bathtub, just the most amazing. <laughs> Not the biggest thing in the world, but just has this insane acoustic. Everything that comes with being a chorister is great. And, uh, you know, you do – we went on – I think it was the first time I'd actually been abroad, you know, was, was being a chorister. We went to Belgium. I mean, I cried my eyes out for a whole week. Um <laughs> But just went on so many choir tours. That's amazingly egalitarian, isn't it? Actually, far more than you'd expect from a choir school. Oh, yeah, but we did the same kind of things that other choir schools would do, and so it was just mad that then this little choir school in Grimsby was, you know, we'd, we'd go at least one choir tour abroad a year, 
you know I mean? Belgium, Germany, Iceland. And then, like, sang at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, we sang at the opening of the Grimsby Auditorium. Um, sang on the National Lottery with Dudley Moore playing the piano. Do you know what wow. I mean? So there was, you know, it just had these experiences that, you know, I talk about forever. Like, anyone that was ever thinking, oh, should I let my son or daughter audition? Do go for it because it mm. really is just it's just it's just a great experience and I honestly can't tell you that there was no negatives whatsoever. Oh, then I'm glad to put your folder of music for the week <laughs> into you. the time capsule. What Thank a lovely you. thing! Okay, Lloyd, that's two things. So we've got another three. Right, time to take a short ad break in order to pay for the making of this podcast. So bear with us, and we'll be back very soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back. Time to return to the comedian, actor, presenter and chorister Lloyd Griffith to discover what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. So this one is, uh, it's a Pizza Hut stuffed crust meat feast. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you mentioned earlier on about the compartments and <laughs> I think this will definitely need its compartment. I'm not sure how we're going to keep it fresh, whether there's chance of having a frozen compartment, but I guess then that'll need electricity. So I guess we're just going to have to take a gamble as to how well it keeps on yeah. the underground. Yeah. But then saying that though, Birdseye, Captain Birdseye, but the actual person that invented Birdseye, because it's Birdseye, they're big factories in Grimsby. They used to like store food in caves and stuff and come back you know, a year later and things would be frozen. Well, there, of course, yes. And, you know, wine, ambient temperature. Exactly. So let's see how much a... Pizza Hut stuffed crust meat feast pizza will hold. But <laughs> I, uh, it was my first proper, proper job. I had various jobs like growing up, being a pot wash boy at various restaurants, power hosing, bird crap off the seats at Blundell Park, mm. at Grimsby Town Stadium. Uh, and then when I was 16, I got a job at Pizza Hut. And it kind of changed my life, really, because it was the first proper adult thing that I'd, that I'd done and was having to interact with customers and... Again, it just gave me the confidence to speak to people, I think, which is, again, one of the reasons why I'm you know, d- doing this job today. Mm. And the friends that it brought with me, you know, the friends that I've got, I've been friends for life. We've done stuff together. I've met new people. And again, it's kind of carved out who I am, you know, because of it. And I was kind of like, what's, you know, a little quiet, shy, choir boy 
grow. Well, not, I wasn't quite shy. I was always a bit of a clown. Mm. But then working at Pizza Hut just, I think, made me an adult relatively quickly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Having to deal with adults on a daily basis, you know, like taking money, taking orders, having to be accountable for certain things. And them accepting you as an adult as well. And also them accepting me as an adult. Yeah, and that was, do you know what? That's actually the, the kind of like the nail on the head there, Michael, because it was, you know, I'd always been a child or like a young adult, whereas there I was an adult. You know, I was still young, but I was an adult. And, <laughs> you know, we'd go out drinking and I was still underage, but they were like, everyone else was an adult. They're like, yeah, but you're an adult. It's fine. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, okay. Fair enough. And just, it was the first time where then there were like relationships evolving. I was like, oh, crikey, people, people are going out with, you know, it was just, it was just, a, it was a, <laughs> my eyes were opened to a yeah. number of things. And what was a real advantage is I absolutely loved Pizza Hut and had been going to Pizza Hut, that specific restaurant, for years, <laughs> for years. And then weirdly, so I talked about at the very start, um, my aunties being quite large ladies um, and being called, you know, the weather girls. And I remember the first, one of the first nights that I was doing a Friday night that, oh, we've got these two, these two sisters come in, big girls, big girls, lovely though, honestly. They get two large pieces each and they go to the salad bar. And then with the salad bar, what they do is they create this thing called the greedy boards. And I was like, oh yeah, they're my aunties. She went, no, 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 no. And I was like, no, the two, but yeah, they're my aunties. Like, no, okay, Lloyd, okay, calm down. And then, so what they do with the salad bar is they put potato salad and coleslaw at the bottom. Then they get the cucumbers to go around the side that essentially, well, you know, like, if you've got a skip and you're trying to make the skip a little bit better, you put the doors around the skip to get more stuff <laughs> yeah. in the skip. They do that, but with the salad bar. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're my aunties. They're called greedy boards. Like, whatever. Anyway, like two hours later, they were, oh, they're really nice. They also, they help us make up the, the, the takeaway boxes. They sit down in the little takeaway bit and they make, help us make the takeaway boxes. Let me show you how to get more in. Exactly, yes. yeah. And then um, I turn up and they're like, oh, look, here are the sisters. And I was like, all right, Auntie, Irene, all right, Auntie Binny. They went, all right, Lloyd. <laughs> and the two girls working were like absolutely mortified. Oh, my God, please don't tell him. I was like, no, he's fine. Do you know what I mean? You know, there was a lot of love there. So I used to go to pizza as a kid. It was a treat getting a takeaway on a, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Mm. And then I worked there as a, as, as a 16-year-old kid and got 50% discount. 50%. And let me tell you, my aunties loved me even more when they realised <laughs> it was extended to friends and family. wasn't wasn't great for the um, profitability of the Grimsby branch, um, <laughs> but the pizza I was obsessed with before even working there and whilst working there was the stuffed crust meat feast, and mm. um, was so excited when I had to like make one for the first time, and and so this kind of like sim- that pizza symbolises my time there it did absolutely aid my development as a, as an adult. And again, if and when I have children, they will absolutely be getting a job at the age of 16. Mm. I worked in a market at 16. Did you? Uh, yeah, selling leather coats. Leather coats? Yeah. Whereabouts? East Street Market in southeast London, between New Cross and the Elephant and Castle. Oh, really? My uncle had a stall. So I did that thing of, as you say, coming out of school and going into this place and then pretending to be an adult and then thinking, well, actually, I am. Yeah. It really did help. You know, that helped with just speaking to adults because the only real adults you'd spoken to before would have been, you know, your family and your teachers. And, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> they know who you are. Do you know what I mean? They knew that you went to bed until the age of 14, that you were breastfed <laughs> until nine. Um, whereas all of a sudden, you know, you're speaking to adults at pizza and you can make up who you are. There's a bit of a reset button. There definitely is. You can make a decision at that point. Actually, yeah. all right, I know I've been this person, but from now I'm going to be this person. A hundred percent. So, and that, and that really did... Uh, brought me on leaps and bounds with confidence and stuff. And weight-wise, it wasn't ideal, you know what I mean, because it was all on a plate, L- literally all on a plate there. And also as well, when it was the all-you-can-eat buffet, um, it used to be Monday to Friday, I think uh, 12 till 2.30, mm-hmm. any of the pizza that wasn't eaten on the all-you-can-eat buffet was brought into the kitchen, and then we were just allowed to dispense of it like human bins. So um wasn't great for my uh, body mass index whatsoever. Well, I think the stuffed crust meat feast will last months and months and months. It could be years. It could counteract, and again, that's that's what's going to counteract the smell of the mighty <laughs> Delta Premier League Ultimax. So, <laughs> True, um, but I also think after the Great Holocaust, the Putin Holocaust, yeah. the few people who are left will discover it and go, my word, he's kept humanity going. <laughs> <laughs> if the cockroaches haven't eaten it. Yeah. <laughs> Lloyd, we've got two left. We've got one more that you want to keep and one you'd like to put in there and forget. So one that I'd like to keep, a bit of a weird one. So my godfather, um, God rest his soul, Jeffrey Wood, lovely bloke. I used to stay around at his house quite a bit and he kind of like looked after me and my sister. He used to wear Brute, which I know is an ongoing running joke as to what <laughs> but he used to wear it non-ironically. It was genuinely his smell. Every now and then a little bit of Old Spice, but genuinely it was a big green bottle of Brute that sat in his bathroom. And I remember wearing it for the first time and absolutely hating it, just being on my skin. (laughs) Since then, I've become obsessed with aftershaves and perfumes. I've got a real weird collection, quite a big collection, really. Mm. And again, I think it's because I'm quite a big lad. It's the one thing that I know that will always fit. Um, you know, <laughs> perfumes. I mean, I'll, you know, have to lose weight for a roll or put on weight for a roll. And uh, I mean, I just say that as an excuse. I just love eating. But I just know that through thick and thin and, uh, you know, m- mainly through thick, uh, <laughs> perfume is the one thing that will um, fit on me. My mum used to wear perfumes and stuff, but Brute was the first one that I was like, oh, right, this is quite an overpowering smell. And, you know, it always smelled great on him, but on me, it just absolutely smelled horrifically. And it just just reminds me of him, really. So Mm. this is, again, in in the whole nostalgia part, as it were. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. And they still sell it now. Amazing, isn't it? And it costs like £7. (laughs) Does it? Well, it's not expensive, and I think it shows you the measure of Brute, really, that it's available in varying different amounts of shops. <laughs> some <laughs> reputable, some absolutely not reputable. Like you, If you can get it from the same place, you can buy onions. Um, <laughs> you know, the fact that you can go to Asda and get your weekly shop and then also some aftershave. <laughs> but he was a great man, and uh, he was a ex-rally driver, Really? Yeah, he used to play table tennis for Great Britain and stuff. So he had a lot of huge accomplishments. How did he become your godfather then? Uh, He knew my auntie. So he knew my auntie Beryl. They used to play squash together. Mm. Then he became a godfather and then they fell out and she called him a boring old fart. And then I think he called her a stuck up old cow. Yeah, so it was a really kind of like two old people in their 60s really, you know, um, slagging each other off, which Mm. was great. He was was a very very inspirational man, really. And... uh, 
it was quite interesting that the one thing he'd always be like, Lloyd, you're never going to make it as a musician. You're never going to make it as a musician. You're never going to make it as a performer. Only a few amount of performers actually do it. You want to be an accountant or an engineer. Do something that, you know, a job you can rely on. I'd be like, mm. And annoyingly, sadly, I never got to show him that he was wrong. Uh, you uh, know, and that's the one thing that I, you know, you know <laughs> that sounds awful, isn't it? You know, I wish he was alive now so I could tell him. Do you know <laughs> yeah, what? You're wrong. You're wrong. What do you know? Obviously, it'd be nice to, you know, just for him to be here so you can, he was obviously a sailor, ex-rally driver, just be able to show him the way in which cars have evolved. And mm. I mean, he'd hate, hate F1 now. He used to love F1. He used to religiously watch F1 on, on a weekend and uh, he would hate it now. Too many rules, regulations. You know what hardly mean? anybody dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If so, I said to him, actually, do you know what? Ayrton Senna was the last person to have passed away. Like, well, that's it. It's too safe. What's going on? Um, but yeah, so he was a real character. Clearly a big part of your youth. Oh, 100%. Yeah, he, um, he, he passed away when he was 75. But he, he used to drive a Subaru Impreza WRC Turbo STI 2000. <laughs> the classic Subaru blue with the gold wheels. He used to oh, wear a, a leather jacket with uh, big aviator sunglasses. And uh, this is all not, like non-ironic. He'd just been wearing that since the 50s. Yeah. And he was a, a ball chap and it was just quite funny. Like he'd get to like, the traffic lights and these lads would be like a little boy racer. And then they would like... All right, granddad. And he'd like look over like, oh, hello. And he'd absolutely play up to it. They're like, nice car. He's like, oh, is he? Well, I'm just looking after it for my uh, my godson. Um, is it quite fast? They'd be like, yeah, mate, it's really fast. And then they'd be revving their little Ford Focus engine. And then the lights would go green. And he would absolutely just take them for dust. Um <laughs> He never got any points on his license. He never crashed his car apart from when he was doing rally driving and stuff. So it was just quite interesting. Do you know what I mean? He just illegally, not illegally. Well, actually, yeah, do you know what? He's, he's passed away now. So I don't think the police are going to go for him posthumously, no. but he would often speed on the A180 and he'd get a sports car every few years. And, we'd, you know, it was, it was a, you know, but he wore brute. I think that is the measure of the man. <laughs> yes. He wore brute. And so that that is going in there because uh, it was a, a nice smell that makes me think, ah, oh, Jeffrey, brute. Lovely. All right, for Jeffrey's sake, I have worn brute. I admit, in my yeah, life, yes, I think we all have, and uh, it did no good at all. I even did what Henry <laughs> Cooper told us, which was uh, you may not even remember this, but Henry Cooper used to advertise it and he used to say, "Splash it all over," and I, I think I did, which meant that I stank of the bloody stuff. <laughs> flammable, yeah, almost highly yeah. flammable. <laughs> Don't wear it on bonfire night. Oh, that's why it's in a sealed container in there, nowhere near a flame. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, we could use it to heat up the pizza. That's, <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so the one final thing, Lloyd, that you want to get rid of? Um, reviewers. Mm-hmm. Mainly comedy reviewers, if that's all right. Yeah, fair enough. But I think this also does go out to theatre reviewers, to music reviewers. I just don't see why they are responsible for shaping the landscape of culture mm-hmm. when it's just one person's opinion. Yeah. And there's one reviewer in particular in the comedy world that I'm thinking of that I'm not going to name him because I might need him in the next few months when I'm trying <laughs> to ship my tour. But I just think that it's, you know, comedy, anything arts-based is so subjective. Mm. And it just annoys me and upsets me that they're allowed to kind of make or break people's careers. And yeah. we talked about it earlier again. You know, if you do a joke, it's not funny. You go, no, it's not funny yet. 
but it will be. Mm. And I think that's testament to not just jokes, but also people going, you know, I, I haven't yet worked it out, but it will, you know, it will be. Yeah. And I, I got a review early on in my career, far too early for me to be getting a review. And I, I hadn't asked for the review. I was just doing a night and this person happened to be there. And it, it really set me back. I remember like being, you know, crying because it was so bad. And, you know, I'd had my mind set on being a comedian and a number of other comedians like, look, don't worry about it. Like, you know, it's it's something that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but do not let that be the measure of you. And I think in this day and age now where you've got, let's just say things like TripAdvisor or Google or Trustpilot. Do you mean these are user-generated reviews? So you're getting, you know, the, what what isn't someone's taste will be someone else's taste. Mm. And so I, I just think that this day and age, reviewers, sadly, are obsolete. That's a very good point. I mean, in a way, what you're getting is a much more fair review because some people will say, well, I didn't think it was funny at all. I had a miserable yeah. night. But if the majority of people are saying, it was great, I really made me laugh, yeah. then you can rely on that because that's 500 people who've given an opinion and 10 of them didn't like it. It's 95.8% funny then, yeah, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. I remember going to see someone else's show in Edinburgh and this person was maybe like four or five years into their proper career. Um, and again, I won't name them, but um, they were very funny. They were really, really funny. They were mm. doing a room, I'd say like 55, 60 people in this room at the Pleasance in Edinburgh. Yeah, it's um, a difficult size, that as well, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is a difficult size, but this 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 person was in a, in one of the porter cabins, which is where you kind of start out in. It's where I did my first show there. Yeah. And they had the audience in the palm of their hand. It mm. was so funny. And I remember seeing a review two days later, and it was a review from that very same show. And I knew it was the same show because they referenced certain audience members that they spoke to. And so I was aware. And then I actually spoke to that person's publicist because I was so angry about it, going, <laughs> Did, was this from that night? They're like, oh, it was from this night. They gave them two stars. Oh, my God. And they slated the show. They said it wasn't intellectually clever. They just gave it a real disservice. And what really annoyed me is towards the end of this review, it said, to be fair, it was quite obvious that so-and-so had the audience in the palm of their hand as they laughed non-stop for 60 minutes. Uh, but it just wasn't my type of humour. Hmm. And then they did a really bad pun on the name of the show. And I was like, you can't try and be funny <laughs> if you're slating something you're saying that's funny. And then you who are... He's, Demonstrating that you have no sense of humour at all, yes. Exactly. Mm. That person, two weeks ago, sold out Wembley Arena. Yeah. You know, so it it was obvious that this person was very, very funny. Mm. It was obvious this person was so naturally gifted that they would go on to do massive things. Yeah. And since then, they have done on various different disciplines. I mean, not just comedy, but various different things, acting, presenting, and it was just so infuriating. I just, I, it, it stuck with me to this day, you know, and this isn't the reviewer thing, you know, isn't necessarily personal, but I just watched this show and I just remember sat in that porter cabin down this little lane in Edinburgh thinking, we're witnessing something amazing here. We're mm. witnessing someone in a 50 seater venue that is going to go on to be massive. They have subsequently sold out Wembley and other arenas. And you're yeah. thinking, how is this person allowed to review what's just happened? Thank goodness they didn't have the influence that some reviewers do have. They can absolutely finish someone's career. I was doing tour support for someone quite a few years back, and I had gone on and done like 15, 20 minutes. Then the main act had gone on and done like half an hour, 
Then there was a break. Then they come on and do another hour. Mm. At the break, I left because I had to go home back to London and go and do something the next morning. I was like, I'm going to go and get the train. I was with my agent and I saw a reviewer turn up at half time, having missed the first 40 minutes of this person's review. Two days later, I saw the review had given them three stars and they hadn't reviewed the whole evening. It's shameful. (laughs) And I was just like... And it shouldn't have got to me, but it's like, going, look, you wield this power that genuinely performers are petrified of. Mm. But then that person did wield a lot of power and it would have been detrimental for a little bit. Again, this person is a huge global star, so it doesn't really matter. But it just annoys me that reviewers have this kind of authority. In a way, being a reviewer has its own problem built in, in as much as most people go to see shows every now and again. And we look forward to it and we go in with an enthusiastic attitude. And if it's quite good, we have a great time. If it's brilliant, we have a fantastic time. And we're there as an audience, whereas they're not. They're there to judge it. And they do it almost every night. I don't think you're getting a true representation of what that evening is. No. I'm, as I say, going out on tour at the start of 2023. And you just know that when you go to Exeter, as you go to Swindon, when you go to Manchester, when you go to Liverpool, those people are there. They're excited about going on a night out. They want to be entertained. And it's a two-way thing. They're there to have a good time. You want to give them a good time. That reviewer hasn't paid for that ticket. It's a job. It's a completely different experience. So I just think that reviewers have had their day. I think in the day and age of, you know, if you're a musician, you can tell if someone's music's popular or good just by the amount of streams it has. Podcasts are reviewed by the masses as opposed to just one or two people. If I don't enjoy a podcast or something, maybe I won't review it. And maybe that's a bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah, but, yeah. but, but then if you see, you know, if you see something on Amazon Prime, you go and watch, want to watch something on Amazon Prime, and it's got three or four stars, uh, two or three stars. You think, oh, may, maybe mm. I will, maybe I won't. But you, then you just get on with your life. Do you know what yeah. I mean? But you're not going to read a character assassination from someone that is a failed performer and go, yes. oh God, no. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, I've had exactly that review, the one that you mentioned. I've had exactly that review where they did, again, say, everybody around me seemed to think this was extremely funny. But I can tell you now, this is one of the unfunniest shows I've ever seen. That's great. So, yes, I'm happy to put reviewers and reviews into the time capsule. But just on that, so off the record, um, it was... You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Lloyd Griffith. Please subscribe to this podcast and do tell your friends if you enjoyed it. Yes, like poor old Liz Truss, remember her? We're all about growth, growth, growth. I've got growths all over me. Of course, there is an even better way of telling people that you enjoyed it, and that's by sharing posts we make on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Or you could rate the podcast, or even review it on some podcast providers, such as Apple. I can promise we read every single review and really appreciate the effort. Thanks. If you're keen on theme tunes, and why wouldn't you be, then why not add ours to your playlist? It's available on Spotify, and it's called the My Time Capsule Theme Tune, rather inventively, and was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music, an alter ego of our producer, John Fenton-Stevens. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. Now, you've listened to the very end, which qualifies you to hear one of my dreadful jokes. 
I mean, they're not all mine, obviously. I was tempted recently for Halloween, for example, to use the brilliant Gary Delaney gag. There's only one thing I hate about Halloween, which is... Then again, who wouldn't want to occasionally use a Tim Vine joke, such as, I don't like streaming music. From now on, I'm sticking to old-fashioned records, and that's vinyl. But today, I'm going to tell you a joke from my own memory, whilst I still can. Lord knows where I heard it, so I can't credit them. We'll just have to put it into the great globally-owned pool of jokes. So here we go. At the end of a funeral, the pallbearers are carrying the casket of an old man who's just died out of the church, when they accidentally bump into a wall, jarring the casket. From inside, they hear a faint moan. They open the casket to find that the man is actually alive. Amazingly, he lives for ten more years. And then he dies. Fair enough. A ceremony is again held at the same church, and at the end of the ceremony, the pallbearers are again carrying out the casket. As they walk past the man's wife, she says, Watch out for the wall. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 